Good morning and welcome to Rising. We have maybe the best show ever for you today. <laughs> Let's see if we can live up to that. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. I'm ready to try. I'm ready to try. Well, on Wednesday, the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic held a hearing to investigate the origins of COVID-19. The hearing largely grappled with uh, between two hypotheses of how the pandemic began through a natural spillover event or an accidental lab leak. Witnesses who testified included the Republican invitees Jamie Metzl, a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, an international affairs think tank based in Washington, D.C., Dr. Robert Redfield, former director of the CDC, of course, and Nicholas Wade, former science editor for The New York Times. All three of those witnesses have supported the lab leak hypothesis. The Democrats invited one witness, Paul Alwerter, the clinical director of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Alwerter is more favorable uh, toward the zoonotic origin of the disease. We gave our initial reaction to some of the news out of the hearing yesterday, so check that out if you missed it. Here to discuss key takeaways from the hearing is Catherine Eban, contributing editor at Vanity Fair, who's done really terrific reporting on the potential origins of COVID-19. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Great to be on with you. So you were uh, among er the early reporters of some of the potential conflicts of interest in which the NIH uh, would have maybe been reticent to fully investigate a lab leak hypothesis. You also did some great reporting on uh, what intelligence we've gathered, what information we've gathered about what was actually going on in the Wuhan lab, the pressure to produce experimentation, whether it led to uh, cutting of corners. So I think you're a, a perfect person to have on to discuss this. What was your takeaway from the hearings and from the kind of shifting consensus, which is now being much more open to the possibility of a lab leak? Well, first of all, you know, it's important to say that this hearing was a long time in coming. Um, there has been a um, sort of political standoff and a scientific standoff around the question of origins. Um, and so this is really one of the very first hearings that looked squarely at this issue. I think part of the Democratic reluctance to hold hearings on this is that the Republicans have really targeted Anthony Fauci. Um, and so the entire debate has become really unfortunately politicized in a way that I think has been uh, very counterproductive uh, in exploring the very serious questions that that exist. Yeah, um, speaking on the politicization front, you know, we've heard, um, I, I've seen kind of commentators in the media, in the mainstream media, uh, you, you know, who are now saying, okay, yes, the lab leak should be explored and investigated, but I, I was hesitant. You know, th they'll say that they were hesitant to, um, to open the door to that because of the perception that it was somehow tied to something Donald Trump thought or that it was somehow the more racially problematic of the theories. Um, I think that's very, that seemed like a knee-jerk kind of appraisal of those two theories to me anyway. It doesn't really make sense. Um, and shows, I guess, the risk of, of having the pursuit of truth be so, be so hamstrung by, by, uh, by politics. You know, this has just been uh, really a toxic debate from the very beginning. Um, President Trump got up in April of 2020 and said it came from the lab. He did not provide evidence. You know, from my own reporting, it's clear that some of what is viewed by some as stronger evidence 
came in much later than that. So it is really not clear what the basis of that early claim he made was. But, you know, it certainly set the stage for an extreme reluctance uh, by many within the government and outside of it to even take this um, possibility seriously. Um, unfortunately, because of that, um, the kind of the, the clues or the, ma the material has come out drip by drip through um, through sort of armchair sleuths, through a few journalists, uh, through um, FOIA groups who have been litigating against the NIH. And, you know, what has emerged from internal emails um, is a picture of an NIH that quickly seemed to understand that it had some exposure here. That is not to say that the NIH played necessarily any role in funding the research that ultimately may have led to a laboratory leak, but it is clear that the NIH did uh, provide funding that went to uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology for risky coronavirus research, um, and that has really complicated the investigative picture here. Catherine, can you speak to some of the evidence that was presented at the hearings from the pro-zoonotic camp versus the lab leak camp? Because so much of this conversation is about, you know, stigma and bias and premature claims and cover-ups. But for people who just want to be able to figure out what really happened, what, what kind of evidence are we looking at? Well, first of all, let me just say, um, there are a number of virologists who have made the point that there were no virologists on the panel uh, yesterday. That is mm. true, and I think that's unfortunate. So we really did not get to hear um, from the scientists in the virology community who have advocated that this uh, and studied and come up with a conclusion that uh, there was a natural origin for this virus and it came from a market. So. Uh, unfortunately, that viewpoint was not very well represented at the hearing yesterday. Um, but the viewpoint that was represented was um, the people putting forth the evidence that it possibly could have come from a laboratory. So one of the things that they have talked about is um, <clears throat> the unusual features of this virus, that it contains a furin cleavage site, which is a genomic feature of the virus that allows it to sort of dock successfully in human cells and infect human cells. Um, now, why is that uh, a particularly alarming to some of the witnesses yesterday? Because in 2018, uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology's top coronavirus scientists, in partnership with a North Carolina virologist and a scientific nonprofit in the U.S., applied to DARPA, which is a DOD agency, to create coronavirus uh, sequences with that exact feature in them. So they were proposing to do in 2018 what emerged in late 2019. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, the witnesses yesterday pointed out that that is, that alone is enough for us to be able to consider um, the possibility of a laboratory leak. Mm. You know, the witnesses also pointed out that the NIH really has not been forthcoming here about uh, <clears throat> what kind of research they funded, 
um, you know, what the grant proposals were, um, whether they were funding extremely risky research, uh, you know, and all of that took place about eight miles away from the market where the virus first emerged. And, and could you, uh, you know, summarize for our viewers some of the, the reporting you've done on, uh, you know, the uh, the the lab procedures, the pressure to produce innovations, the the dispatches from the Wuhan, Wuhan Institute of Virology that perhaps suggest a warning of something very bad that had happened that they were, you know, war tele informing the government about. Right. Well, the sources I've interviewed and the documents that I've obtained basically show that in the run-up to the emergence of the virus, um, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was struggling with its biocontainment procedures. It was making procurements uh, that suggested there may have been some kind of issue that they were grappling with, some sort of biocontainment issue. Uh, and then there were uh, archived documents suggesting that there were meetings related to um, biocontainment problems that occurred at the WIV. I think even more compellingly is the fact that, you know, their own directors and their own scientists were publishing uh, papers in peer-reviewed journals saying that the, you know, regulation and the procedures around risky research were woefully inadequate. They did not have enough funding. They did not have enough trained and experienced staff. Um, you know, there seemed to be a recognition in China that uh, there was a need for regulatory overhaul of this risky research. And those top folks, including uh, the scientists who ran the BSL-4 laboratory at the Wuhan Institute of Virology were really sounding the alarm about some of these problems. You know, I should say, I think we don't know enough at this point to say um, where this virus originated. And that was really a major uh, theme that emerged from yesterday's hearing. So there has been a call uh, in Congress for the Biden administration to declassify what they do know. Uh, and I think that that could go a long way toward filling out the picture here. Mm. Well, we want to play an exchange from the hearing yesterday. House Republican uh, Jim Jordan had this to say. Why don't you cut to the chase and tell them what you really think was the reason? <laughs> I don't know what, what the reason was. I, do I know what it was. I Go well, ahead. no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll let you say it, because I read your testimony. I think you, you said it in your testimony, too. Maybe you're reluctant <clears> to say it here, but go ahead. Well, if you're looking at the timeline, on um, May 21st, um, just uh, a few weeks after the Nature, Med uh, the, the Nature Medicine article had come out, uh, two of the signatures of the original email to uh, Dr. Fauci, that, that's Dr. Anderson and Dr. Gary, were awarded a $9 million grant for the So there's reason. $9 million reasons why they changed their mind. I knew you'd get to it. I read that last night. Three months after, so three days after they say it came from a lab, they changed their position in the only intervening events, a conference call with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins, again, a call that Mr. Redfield was not allowed to be on, the head of CDC and on the coronavirus task force. And then three months later, shazam, they get nine million bucks from Dr. Fauci.
So some of the, I think, concerning details to emerge in this hearing is that, you know, and Red, Dr. Redfield's testimony was very powerful, that he was not welcome in some of these conversations because of his advocacy or because of his idea that it was a lab leak. Um, and, and also, you know, we're, we're worried, can we trust government science health experts to properly vet and investigate COVID's origins when it does seem like they both had money at stake and almost something ideologically and, and, and a desire to avoid future bureaucratic scrutiny, right, given their investment in the kinds of uh, the research that we're now worried about? So really what goes to the heart of the question here is why there appears to have been an effort to manufacture an early narrative that this could not have come from a laboratory. Uh, and really that, that um, narrative was manufactured long before scientific evidence had emerged, right? It was very early on, January, February, in which the question of a possible laboratory origin was branded as a conspiracy theory. Um, and that was done in a series of papers. Um, uh, and in the paper that um, Jordan is referring to there was called Proximal Origins. It was um, uh, really put together in February of 2020 by a group of scientists who had, uh, you know, background conversations with Dr. Fauci and Jeremy Farrar of the Wellcome Trust in the UK. Um, and the question there has been, why did they, um, the scientists who were involved said early on, privately in emails to one another, that it looked to them like it possibly could have come uh, from a laboratory, that it could have been en an engineered virus. Uh, within days, they changed their uh, stance and put together a paper which really took the possibility of a laboratory leak off the table. And so one of the questions is, why did that happen? Did it happen on the basis of um, some scientific evidence that they got a hold of so quickly? Or did it happen on the basis of a decision that a narrative of a laboratory leak would be so damaging to science, to the NIH, um, to international harmony, which, um, one of the emails references that uh, they wanted to kind of put that possibility to bed as quickly as possible. Mm. Mm. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us to go over that. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more Rising right after this. What's on your radar, Brianna? Uh, Robbie. Just a month after Seymour Hersh reported intelligence from an anonymous source detailing how the United States carried out the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines that were built to deliver natural gas from Russia to Ukraine, the corporate media has finally acknowledged that the report was published at all, but not for the reason you might think. Rather than reporting on Hirsch's journalism, assessing the stated motives for the U.S.'s unlawful attack, corroborating or refuting details in Hirsch's reporting, or conducting their own independent investigations, the mainstream media has recognized Hirsch's reporting only in the context of a new theory of who's responsible for the unlawful attack. 
Earlier this week, the New York Times published an article announcing that, quote, newly collected intelligence now suggests that the Nord Stream bomber was not the United States, but a pro-Ukraine group. In the context of this article, Hirsch's reporting is finally acknowledged, not as the detailed source piece of journalism that it was, but in the following aside, quote, Last month, the investigative journalist Seymour Hirsch published an article on the newsletter platform Substack concluding that the United States carried out the operation at the direction of Mr. Biden. In making his case, Mr. Hirsch cited the president's pre-invasion threat to bring an end to Nord Stream 2 and similar statements by other senior U.S. officials. Well, of course, this passage gives the impression that Cy Hirsch based his report on remarks made by U.S. officials. No mention is made of his anonymous source or the details that source provided. Details like the skill level required to execute a deep sea explosion and the limited number of divers on the planet who are even trained to carry out such a mission. Where the drivers, divers were trained, how regular NATO events in the vicinity of the pipeline helped to justify the presence of U.S. ships in the area, how the Biden administration ducked congressional reporting requirements, and the fact that the mission launched from Norway or even a timeline of when the attack was planned and by whom. And no one could argue that the erasure of those details was strategic. For one, reducing Hirsch's argument to Biden administration statements puts the accusation that the U.S. carried out the attacks in the realm of mere conjecture. But second, detailing Hirsch's account would make the complete and total lack of detail in the new New York Times report that much more striking. As journalist Aaron Maté recently wrote in an article you can find on his Substack, quote, the only confirmed intelligence about the supposed pro-Ukrainian group that carried out the attack is that the U.S. officials have no intelligence at all. The Times report explained that, quote, U.S. officials said there was much they did not know about the perpetrators and their affiliations. The alleged newly collected information does not specify the members of the group or who directed or paid for the operation. But despite the lack of evidence of any kind, the New York Times sources speculated that the saboteurs were most likely Ukrainian or Russian nationals, or some combination of the two. Aaron goes on to contrast the credulity with which the Times accepts its anonymous sources' account with the skepticism heaped on Hirsch. Despite offering no details and no corroborating information, the Times argued that this story, quote, amounts to the first significant known lead about who was responsible for the attack on the Nord Stream pipelines. While the Times' anonymous sources are considered significant, Hirsch's source was treated with overwhelming skepticism. The Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist was attacked as not credible, and those journalists who did opine on Hirsch's report, rather than simply memory-hole it, ignore it altogether, relied on ad hominems. The New Yorker claimed Hirsch had gone off the rails and embraced conspiracy theories. And the State Department spokesman, Ned Price, referred to the report as propaganda before mischaracterizing its contents entirely. Take a listen. One of the allegations that Hirsch makes is that it was taken off the CIA in order to prevent involvement, uh, oversight uh, as a covert operation. Did you read the piece? I'm familiar with it. Uh, one of his allegations is that it was taken off the field. Look, ra rather than let this this propaganda get, be, be aired in, in the briefing room, but let, 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 let me just say it is a fundamental misunderstanding of oversight in our U.S. Congress. Beyond getting his facts entirely wrong, as he has before in very 
uh, high-profile ways. Uh, it is a fundamental misunderstanding to suggest that our intelligence community is not subject to oversight. Anyone who writes that, anything who writes anything like that, no, no, uh, should, no, should not be not believed by any no, no, no. that he, he wrote was that it was taken off of uh, a CIA and put under military in order to prevent... Our military is also subject to rigorous oversight. That, that, that's my uh, question. That's yes. my question. The answer is yes. Do you recognize and abide by the um, war powers clause in such a situation? Just listen to the level of detail that you get about Hirsch's account just from that reporter's question. Of course, Hirsch's reporting could be wrong. His source could be wrong. But the specificity offers ample opportunity for specific pushback. In other words, there are a lot of details in Hirsch's account and in the reporter's question that could be disputed if they were entirely wrong. But instead of listening and engaging to that specificity, Ned Price filibusters, mischaracterizes the reporting, and justifies his non-engagement by calling Hirsch's account propaganda. Now, let's go back to this new claim that a pro-Ukrainian group executed the attack. As Aaron summarizes the Times' opinion, uh, position, quote, U.S. officials have much they did not know about the perpetrators, i.e. everything, enormous gaps in their awareness of how the unknown pro-Ukraine group purportedly carried out a deep-sea bombing, uncertainty over how much weight to put on their intelligence, and even no firm conclusions to offer. And the timing of this report, following Cy Hirsch's inconvenient to the State Department reporting, is also notable. As Aaron puts it, given the absence of evidence and a curious timing, a reasonable conclusion is not that a Ukrainian proxy force was the culprit, but that the U.S. is now using its Ukrainian proxy as a scapegoat. Now, of course, after radio silence following Hirsch's reporting, the corporate media has been quick to pick up the Times' thin speculative account. Reuters, The Guardian, Forbes, NPR, Fox News, and MSNBC all covered the story. The German media has also picked up the report, claiming to have sourced even more details, mainly that a group of six divers and a yacht carried out the attack. There's been little to no interrogation of who trained these divers or how they managed to transport the equipment and explosives needed for the attack to the site of the bombing. The German paper merely explained that the boat was discovered by investigators because traces of explosives were left on the boat, a mistake that seems somewhat out of step with the sophistication of the mission. As Aaron put it, should this lean pro-Ukraine crack team of naval commandos conduct another act of deep sea sabotage, they will only need to hire a cleaning professional to get away with it. The New York Times article does not account for what might be the most damning piece of evidence uh, tying the U.S. to the Nord Stream attack, motive. But despite the Times' eagerness to blame Russia immediately following the attack, even it had to back off that allegation after a European investigation found no evidence of Russian involvement and also no motive. Of course, Russia stood to profit mightily from natural gas sales to Europe. America, on the other hand, has long taken issue with Europe's reliance on Russia for energy. We're all now very familiar with the Biden quote, quote, if Russia invades, there will be no longer a Nord Stream 2. We will bring an end to it. America's motives here are clear. No motive has been articulated for this pro-Ukraine group, however. But the U.S.'s motive in fingering an independent actor rather than a nation for this attack is again obvious. Hirsch's report argued that Norway was complicit in the attack, but a NATO ally conducting an act of sabotage would make it difficult for America to use 
respect for the rules-based order to justify its imperialism around the world, or its involvement in the Ukraine war in the first place. And as discussed, the rap just doesn't stick to Russia because of its investment in the pipeline. But for a third-party actor's involvement, the U.S. and its allies would face some pretty serious implications on the global stage. It's a very lucky thing indeed that anonymous sources happen to discover a third-party actor at this time, one about whom we know absolutely nothing. The New York Times really showed its hand in its podcast coverage of this story on The Daily. That's its daily morning show. The host, Michael Barbaro, interviewed one of the authors of the New York Times piece, Julian Barnes, who, after giving a cursory nod to the theory that the U.S. had motive and ability to carry out the attack, said this. So, Julian, who exactly was responsible for this attack, and how did you and our colleagues go about figuring that out? Well, I think what happened was for much of the investigation, we weren't asking exactly the right questions. Hmm. And what were the right questions? Well, we had logically been focused on countries. Mm -hmm. All those states that we just went through. Did Russia do it? Did the Ukraine state do it? And that was just hitting dead end after dead end. We weren't finding officials who were telling us that there was credible evidence pointing at a government. So first, he concludes that it was wrong to think governments carried out this attack because he encountered dead ends. But notice what country he leaves out there. Did the United States do it? <laughs> also note what he describes as a dead end, the absence of an official who was telling him that there was credible evidence pointing at a government. So basically, he was relying on a government actor to implicate itself. Absent that, he's saying it couldn't be the government, a government that was involved. Okay, now let's keep going. My colleagues, Adam Entis, Adam Goldman, and I started asking a different question. Could this have been done by non-state actors? Hmm. Could this have been done by a group of individuals who were not working for a government? Kind of like freelance saboteurs. So where did you take this new question? Well, we started asking who might these saboteurs be, or if we couldn't answer that, who might they be aligned with, right? Could they be mm -hmm. pro-Russian saboteurs? Could they be other saboteurs? Note again, he avoids the possibility of American involvement. Now, earlier in the podcast, he explained why Russian involvement didn't make any sense. Again, Russia benefits enormously from a functioning pipeline. Destroying it destroyed its leverage over Europe. And moreover, Russia can simply turn off the flow. It had control of its own natural gas, obviously. It didn't need to blow up the pipeline to withhold the resource. That being the case, what is the potential motive for a Russian saboteur? The reporter Barnes doesn't explain, nor does he bother explaining how a non-state actor might manage to pull off the sophisticated operation in the first place. But let's keep going. The more we talk to officials who had access to intelligence, the more we saw this theory gaining traction. Mm -hmm. And my initial thought that this could be pro-Russian saboteurs turned out to be wrong. And we learned that it was most likely a pro-Ukrainian group. So that's the admission that the more they talked to intelligence officials, the more they were pointed toward 
independent actors, non-nations, actors that didn't implicate the U.S. or its allies in violating the rules-based order. Barnes frames this as finally asking the right questions after asking the wrong ones. Alternatively, this could be framed as ignoring the obvious and asking the questions that are convenient to the intelligence community. Last segment. The group of people who did this on behalf of Ukraine, what, what do you learn that makes you think that's what happened? Michael, I should be very clear that we know really very little, right? This group remains mysterious, and it remains mysterious not just to us, but also to the U.S. government officials that we have spoken to. They know that the people involved were either Ukrainian or Russian or a mix. They know that they are not affiliated with the Ukrainian government, but they know they're also anti-Putin and pro-Ukraine. So that feels like an admission that his report is based at least in part, probably large part or exclusively, off of U.S. government officials who, as we've discussed, have an obvious incentive to shift the blame from themselves or from their national allies. And moreover, this report that they've come up with is completely unsubstantiated by the kind of detail Hirsch included in his journalism. The only detail here is the one that really matters from a U.S. perspective, that it definitely wasn't us or our allies, nations, that did it. Really incredible stuff here. Just one last fact of note, Bellingcat, a NATO state-funded website, disputed Hirsch's account by claiming that open-source tracking of ships in the Baltic Sea undermined Hirsch's claims that the ships were where he said they were at the times he said they were there. Okay, so this apparent factual refutation was used broadly to discredit Hirsch's account. However, the Times story, it is a little bit useful here, it unwittingly corroborates that ships can turn off location transponders and cloak their movements. This is how the New York Times piece argues the pro-Ukrainian ship was able to access the pipeline undetected. Now, Aaron points out that Hirsch has made this point as well, but it was accepted with much less good faith when Hirsch was making this argument than when the New York Times was making this to make the case that an alleged Ukrainian yacht carried out this deep sea attack. Yeah, wow. Uh, I, I like when he's just kind of speculating, could this have been done <laughs> by freelance saboteurs? No, <laughs> I think is the it's answer. It's like being a child with your hand caught in the cookie jar and your parent comes in and you're like, but hear me out, mom. Right. Might elves have done this? <laughs> you know, you're just, you're just, you're asking the kinds of questions that are leading to the answers that you want. Very plainly on its face. I don't know. I, I felt like I, listening to that daily episode was somehow more damning than the article uh, yeah. because there wasn't like the, I guess, the editor editor standing between you and uh, certain kind of admissions yeah. about what's really driving your reporting here. Someone uh, on Twitter that I like, I think maybe it was that Alice from Queens account mm -hmm. was saying like, okay, they're in the bargaining stage. First it was <laughs> denial. Now it's bargaining. Like, well, okay, okay. I mean, in Russia, no. But, but saboteurs that they like Ukraine, but they're not U.S. or Ukraine. Um, look, I still think there is, is some legitimate uh, question about whether, about who exactly has done this. Sure, of course. Um, I, I think um, Seymour Hirsch reported a lot of great, it's very interesting. Uh, obviously, we pressed him when we interviewed him for more details about his sources, which he understandably can't provide. Um, I, I have also seen, you know, some reporting on whether Ukraine, not, not a 
not an independent saboteur group that happens to have Ukraine's best interest in mind, but the country Ukraine, right. directed by its government, right. are the responsible party. I find that, again, I don't know anything more than anyone else, I find that to be probably, the, in my own view, the leading and likely um, uh, actor involved. But that's but, important, right? And they, they get into this in the, in the but podcast not, no, episode. not just random people who like Ukraine. Right, but the, it's important. Random Russian people it's who a, like Ukraine, right? right? <laughs> it's a, it, that, that's what's so interesting here. It's so important for no nations to be implicated. Because if it's Ukraine, it's with, one, it's, it, it implicates an ally. Mm -hmm. And two, it's probably with the support, investment, or at least, you know, approval of the mm -hmm. American government as well. Or some and, aspect of the American government. Right, right exactly. And if Ukraine is now in a position of being fingered as having destroyed the property of a NATO country, right. someone who we are actually in treat, at a treaty relationship with, the implications of us continuing to side with Ukraine and fight with Ukraine is a disaster from a foreign policy perspective. Yeah. So you mentioned Alice McQueen. She's a favorite of, of mine in terms yeah. of Twitter accounts. She tweeted the other day, uh, new theory, the Nord Stream leak came from the wet market. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Chef kissy react thing. Perfect. All right. All right. Great radar, Brianna. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you so much. More rising right after this. The Committee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government is hosting a hearing right now on the Twitter files. Let's watch some of that. And to praise him for his work. This isn't just a matter of what data was given to these so-called journalists before us now. There are many legitimate questions about where Musk got the financing to buy Twitter. We know for a fact that foreign countries like Qatar and to... So that was, uh, those so-called journalists are Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger, who've both been guests on our show and have done great work to bring the Twitter files to you. Here's how Taibbi responded to being called a so-called journalist. That time was spent at Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, ranking member Plaskett, um, I'm not a so-called journalist. Uh, I've won the National Magazine Award, the I.F. Stone Award for Independent Journalism, and I've written 10 books, including four New York Times, New York Times bestsellers. Uh, I'm now the that time was spent at Rolling <laughs> I love that. A real mic drop moment there. I hope I hope she was listening because it, it seemed like from that clip that she wasn't even really paying attention to him. They're never paying attention. But look, the attacks I on that tape. Congress, which you, they, just, you, they, they say their thing and then they say Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I, I, you are allowed, obviously, to disagree with Matt Taibbi on various mm -hmm. things. You're allowed to say that this aspect of the reporting was more valuable than this aspect, to disagree with some of the conclusions that he might have drawn from some of the reporting. But to deny the substance of what he has reported on in its entirety, at the same time that you completely devolve into ad hominem personal attacks, which are so easily refuted, as Matt Taibbi did there. Of all the things to criticize the man for, the idea that he is somehow not a real journalist or hasn't doesn't have a yeah. body of work that stands on its own two legs, it's absurd. We've not been able to tune into the full hearing because we've been sitting in these chairs <laughs> making this show, but I, so I'm seeing on social media, I'm seeing various clips. And uh, yeah, it, this is a hearing about what the Twitter files has shown, which is this very worrying uh, collaboration between government-funded NGOs and government agencies like the FBI and others to influence Twitter and other social media companies 
to take down so-called misinformation having to do with Hunter Biden, elections, COVID, um, maybe uh, some of those quests, be, uh, some of those requests being legitimate. A lot of them being take down this account that a political figure wanting a, an account taken down that was mean to them. And this cro it's totally cross-partisan Democrats, Republicans doing it. But the the the, the FBI and the agents and the agencies pushing on stuff from a very Russiagate perspective is, I think, what was most concerning and what I've seen from the Twitter files so far, these, these government-funded entities and government agencies saying, take down all these accounts because they're Russian bots, Twitter having internal discussions saying, uh-huh, these aren't actually Russian bots, and then the, the, the pressure campaign saying, you got to do something or we're going to tell Politico or the New York Times that you don't take the threat of Russian misinformation seriously. Yeah, it's That's what is worrying and, and is worth Congress knowing about. And what I'm seeing is that a lot of these Democratic congressmen couldn't care less about this. Yeah, well, it's worth noting, and you've pointed this out, that Yul Roth and others often refused those requests. Yes. And while there have been some really big mistakes, the Hunter Biden laptop story being suppressed, chief among them, accompanied by internal discussions about how this doesn't even really violate our guidelines. I think that's the most damning, one of the most damning pieces. In addition to the Lee Fong reporting about the kind of um, deep state run, intelligence agency run bot accounts that are pantomiming basically uh, a, a, a accordance with yes. various international policies. The U.S. is doing regimes. exactly what our FBI is saying other That Russia is doing. Yes. Right. Okay. So that, that I think, is one of the areas where Matt Taibbi is on such really uh, solid ground. But it is also true, of course, that many times Twitter pushed back against this, and the issue really is almost more of a criticism of the intelligence agencies for trying yes. to curry this influence more than Twitter itself for, at times, acquiescing right. to it. Well, right, and Twitter's a private company. Like, if, if it was as simple as Twitter's just making decisions we don't like, I would, in fact, reject that there's a basis to have a government committee meeting about it. Like, sorry, it's not your company. Sure. But what we've learned is that they're getting pressure from government-funded agencies to do some very um, sketchy things. Yes. And, uh, and I, I want to play a, a couple more clips here. So here was Michael Schellenberger and Taibbi reacting to a question put to them about whether the, the hacked and released materials were misinformation. Mr. Schellenbeck, do you believe that the Russians engaged in a hack and release campaign with respect to the uh, damaging information they released uh, regarding the Clinton campaign? To the best of my awareness, that is what happened. Okay, yes. fair enough. Thank you. Uh, That's not so the same thing. The reason influence. I understand. I understand. Yeah. Also, that material was true. I've been, look, uh, I, let me introduce a couple of documents uh, just to reinforce uh, that we've got uh, a that is, that is not a legitimate predicate for censorship. Mr. Schellenbeck, do you believe? Yeah, again, he's, he's just slamming the door shut there. Like, it's, it's real information. That, that's such it's a, not misinformation. It's yeah. true. That, that's such an important point because so many of Taibbi's critics have been not mis taking that into account as well. I, look, I interviewed Matt Taibbi on my own show on Monday, and I have some concerns about the broader representations, not what he actually has in his hands and he's reporting on, which I think is true mm -hmm. and newsworthy, but some of the broader conclusions that have been drawn about the nature of the bias you know, that it, it, the, the bias is only against the right and not at all against the left, when he, you know, admitted to me in the course of that interview that he has, hasn't very really investigated at all uh, targeting against the left, because he very quickly came across the deep state, the intelligence in, agency's interest in, you know, mess, you know, influencing the censorship regime at these organizations and decided to pursue that, which I think is a very legitimate course of action. But broader claims about whether or not you know, what, what the rest of the files show 
I don't think you can really substantiate. However, having those kind of criticisms, what else is there, is the broader framing accurate, is not the same thing as challenging the newsworthiness of the emails that he has in his possession, which obviously show this relationship between intelligence agencies and Twitter and their ability to influence what Twitter does from a policy perspective that are undeniably inappropriate. And there's some just crazy questioning of his motivations going on in this hearing. Um, De uh, Representative Deb uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz saying that, like, he's just in it for the money or something. Here, let's actually play that yeah. clip. It's pretty illustrative. Please do not interrupt me. Alaskan Elon Musk spoon-fed Elon Musk spoon-fed you his cherry-picked information, which you must have suspected promotes a slanted viewpoint or at the very least generates another right-wing conspiracy theory. You violated your own standard and you appear to have benefited from it. Before the release of emails in, of the emails in August of last year, you had 661,000 Twitter followers. After the Twitter files, your followers doubled, and now it's three times what it was last August. I imagine your Substack readership, which is a subscription, increased significantly because of the work that you did for Elon Musk. Now, I'm not asking you to put a dollar figure on it, but it's quite obvious that you profited from the Twitter files. You hit the jackpot on that Vegas slot machine to which you referred. That's true, isn't it? I've also reinvested You've made a some... No, 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 no. Is it true that you have profited since... You were, you were this recipient of the Twitter files. You've made money. Yes or no? I Very think it's probably question. a wash, honestly. Nope. You've, you, you have made money that you did not have before, correct? But I've also spent money that I didn't have okay. before. I just hired a I, whole group of people a, to Patently obvious answer, reclaiming my time. Attention is a powerful drug. Eyeballs, money, prominence, attention. All of it points to problems with accuracy and credibility. And the larger point which is social media companies are not biased against conservatives, and if anything, they ignored their own policies by allowing Trump and other MAGA extremists to post incessant lies, endangering public safety, and even our democracy. Hypocrisy is the hangover of an addiction to attention. Outrageous. <laughs> outrageous. I'm sorry, you're a journalism who wants people to read your reporting, and you are, it's considered to be uh, undermining your credibility if you're popular, if people respond to the things that you're writing. It's not it's, charity. It's, 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 it's a job. He's paid for his work and the hard work and the, the incredible toll that he's taken as being targeted as a consequence yes. of all of this reporting. It's outrageous. And you know that she would never have this criticism of a new, of a, of a, of a journalist for a, an establishment right. paper, the New York Times. She would never make a criticism of Hillary Clinton right. for the selling Pentagon books papers, as a consequence of her. People are, are doing speeches and selling books. And and Exactly. Right. Good journalism should attract, hopefully, financial rewards. Exactly. And I got to say, this kind of moralizing from someone who had to step down as DNC chair because a leak of true information yes. <laughs> did, uh, revealed her bias for Hillary Clinton and participating in trying to, I don't know, rig the election for the, the 2016 primary election for her preferred candidate. It's a, it's a little bit rich. It's a little bit rich. I will say, however, I do, it pains me to do this, but this is exactly the issue that I was trying to convey to Matt Taibbi when I talked to him most recently on my show, 
it seemed to me he he created a vulnerability and mm-hmm. not just reporting on what was in front of him, but making these broader claims about um, the directionality of the bias, even if they're true. I think it's frankly, especially in the immediate time frame we're talking about now, frankly, very true that the, the social media companies have a bias more against conservatives than, than the right, than the left, and certainly against liberals, because they're all liberals at these institutions. Mm-hmm. But what I think what we're really seeing is a, an establishment bias against an anti-establishment bias. So the biases against Trumpism and those kinds of figures, election denialism, you know, those that part of the right, not Mitt Romney. And and at other times when the left has been more of a threat to power during the Bernie campaigns or many more years ago in American history, then the FBI's focus, the CIA's focus, has disproportionately been attacking those kinds of groups. So I do think a framing that acknowledges that would make Matt Taibbi less vulnerable to what clearly has triggered the liberals here, which is that you are claiming that the the right is victims, and I just can't. I'm going to ignore all the information in the world if it leads me to the conclusion that the right is, in fact, being Targeted Frankly, in this context. I sure, I agree and appreciate that. I don't, but I don't think anything he could have done would have <laughs> yeah, reflected that, the kind of attacks he's getting from yeah. uh, Plaskett and Debbie Wasserman Schultz and others here, yeah. because they are just so bought into the idea that social media let. Uh, pro-Trump voices speak too loudly, and that is the reason he became president. That was illegitimate and wrong. That was a corruption of democracy. It was Russia's fault. Facebook, and to a lesser extent Twitter, it was their job to prevent it. They didn't. That's that's their mindset. That's their entire narrative, and it's it, it's completely wrong. Frankly, it's just completely wrong from start to finish, time and time again. Social scientists, people who've studied, have proven that the influence of Russian bots is minuscule, yes. that it was not correctly calibrated to target the right swing voters. And again, they weren't being targeted necessarily with, with what is misinformation. With right. It's just alternative perspective. Right. Like you always bring up the examples of black voters being yes. targeted and saying the Democratic Party doesn't do enough for them. Yes. That's misinformation? Come on. You're right. And so it's the, it's, the whole idea is wrong. And Taibbi and Schellenberger and others are bringing attention to, to how, uh, how that narrative came about and, and actually efforts that government authorities are making to try to correct a, a, what was not a mistake in the first place. That's, as that's, a result of, yeah. and as a result, we'll all be censored. That, what we are seeing here is a bunch of government actors protecting government institutions. Yes. It really, and this is, when, when I say that I am less enthusiastic or or I'm cautious about the conversation about the valence of this I don't that it's because I don't want this point to be missed it's not that I care if the right is being targeted more than the left they, I think that they are but I don't want to miss the conversation that what we're seeing is that could be mm-hmm. the parties could change the chessboard could can reconfigure the next time around but the establishment actors in Congress are always going to defend mm-hmm. the FBI, the CIA, these intelligence agencies that do their bidding, that are now being accused of potentially blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline, that have been mm-hmm. defending American imperialism and state power and the infringements of the rights of minorities and in, in, in individual citizens since, t- since they were founded. And it's important to keep that in mind because the next time around, yes. the D's and the R's might be switched around, but you're always going to have a panel of Congress people who are willing to sit there and say, there's nothing to see here when the intelligence agencies that we have access to and control over are infringing upon your rights as citizens. And the, the agencies 
they are ideological but not partisan. So right. much of this happened under Republican administrations. Yeah. If Do Donald Trump's going to run, he's running for president, he's going to say, I will put an end to this. Don't believe him. Yeah. So much of it happened under his authority. Well, he was and making he requests, made, too. He made no effort <laughs> to stop it or slow it. He didn't care. He didn't yeah. understand it. Yeah. And that should be a actually reason enough not to trust yeah. him to rein this in whatsoever. He, he very much was making requests, too, as Matt Taibbi yeah. has reported. Yeah. All right, we'll have more Rising right after this. Please stay with us. So many hearings to react to today. Norfolk Southern CEO Alan Shaw was pressed while testifying on Capitol Hill today. Let's listen. In 2021, uh, your company did $3.1 billion of stock buybacks. And in 2022, $3.4 billion of stock buybacks. And as of December, had another $7.5 billion available to do additional stock backs under the $10 billion stock back plan. Uh, that's quite impressive numbers for any American uh, company. It indicates uh, massive uh, profits. Will you pledge today that you will do no more stock buybacks until a raft of safety measures have been completed to reduce the risk of derailments and crashes in the future? Senator, I will commit to invest in continuing to invest in safety. We invest over a billion dollars a year in safety. You, you noted that you have a list of safety things you'd like to implement. Will you commit no more stock buybacks until those safety improvements are completed? Senator, I will commit to continuing to invest in safety. And you've seen over time the number of derailments, hazardous material releases, and personal injuries has declined. There's always more that we will do and I am committed to having the best safety culture in the industry. You're coming here with... Outrageous. First of all, it's not true. There has been an uptick in uh, safety issues in the last few years. There have been two in 20... In two Norfolk Southern derailments in the state of Ohio in this year alone. Moreover, the idea that he will be continuing to invest in safety measures when the safety measures he's obviously investing in to the extent that he's willing to invest in have not been enough to avoid these crises is basically like saying, I'm going to keep doing the same thing that got us into this mess while not committing to stopping the billions of dollars that are being spent to dole out stock buybacks so, for, so that there can be corporate profiteers. Remember, the whole issue with the breaks back in, in 2000 and what was it, 17, was going to cost about half a billion dollars to implement these uh, new electronic brakes as opposed to the old air brake system, which are able to stop the trains much more quickly on a dime and which uh, avoid the risks of derailing to an enormous extent. But they're willing, he's saying right there very explicitly, I'm going to keep spending billions of dollars to pay out money to shareholders, and I'm not willing to first at least commit to doing the basic kinds of investments that could have prevented these crises in the first place. Yeah, this is the kind of hearing where I, I don't think it's uh, going to be particularly useful because, I mean, maybe it's useful from the standpoint of, you know, shaming or grilling a actor who has mismanaged his company or who has, you know, caused environmental harm, but right, he's just going to say no. Will you, you know, stop Putting profits for no, will you? <laughs> yeah, that's what, what, true, but you can't. There's the guy they're trying to gotcha him, but yeah, he's but just going to say they're just going to say platitudes about 
safety and prioritizing but, things and making everyone happy. But, but this is how democracy is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. The the Congress people who are democratically elected and who are ostensibly standing up for the interests of the people who elected them are supposed to use their authority to call hearings and to subpoena witnesses to get information like this out on the record, at which point journalists have an obligation to talk about this information and apply pressure the way that I would, will, will like to say that journalists like David Sirota at The Lever have been doing to expose how much corporate corruption has been going on at these institutions and with Congress for a very long time. Time. And at that point, pressure is put on uh, officials in the current administration who do have the power and authority, even without Congress, to act and change the rules in ways that force behavior changes from CEOs like this, not just ask them at hearings. And this is the point that David Sirota has been making a lot. But for some of the reporting that's come out that exposed exactly who's responsible here and all of the kind of um, uh, deregulatory decisions that have led to this crisis, Pete Buttigieg would have never have showed up in East Palestine to begin with, and he wouldn't be talking now about the kinds of things that he can do in his individual capacity to change outcomes. And it, you know, it, it, you're right. It's not that the exchange in the hearing is necessarily going to change anything, but it provides the grist for public outrage that's ultimately supposed to lead to an effect if all of those other players, journalists and people in the current administration and the people who make it so that there's electoral outcomes if the current administration doesn't respond actually all do their job. Well, Senator Bernie Sanders was also pressing the CEO on paid sick leave for Norfolk Southern workers. Let's watch. Can you tell the American people and your employees right now that in order to improve morale in your workforce, that you will guarantee at least seven paid sick days to the 15,000 workers you employ. I do know you've made some progress. You increased paid sick days for some of your workers. Will you do what most Americans think is pretty obvious, that when you get sick, you get guaranteed paid sick days? Will you make that commitment right now to your entire workforce? Senator, with our latest agreement with our employees, which included a historic 24% wage increase and access to premium health care benefits, we immediately pivoted to talking to each of our local... I, I do want... I've been deeply involved. I introduced the amendment on the floor. I know the issue. But what I'm asking you right now, you provided paid sick days to some of your employees. I got it. Thank you. Will you now do it? What most America... What we get here in Congress. Our employees get sick, they get paid sick days. Will you make that commitment right now to guarantee paid sick days to all of your workers? That's not a radical demand. It really is not. Will you make that commitment, sir? Senator, I share your focus on our employees. I will commit to continuing to discuss with them important quality of life issues with our local craft colleagues. How much could he share Bernie Sanders' commitment to employees when we just had a huge months-long, actually three years-long union fight about securing even a single sick day that resulted in Joe Biden siding with the airline industry? Right, something Biden worked very strike. hard to uh, to agitate against. Right. So now, in the to only keep the in the running, to, to keep the planes running. Yeah. Well. well I, the, the Mussolini illusion isn't necessarily wrong when you talk about, when you, when you talk about what, the, what the, wow. the life, the effect on the quality of life is on these people. Remember, they didn't have any sick days. And the, the train company 
kept coming back and saying, well, we'll pay you a little bit more. But think about what that would mean for your life. Is there an amount of money that you would accept to have to work every single day, to never be able to go to a, a family function, to miss your parents' funerals and your and your cousins' weddings and all of those kinds of things? No. Are you asking those me things or are... an average person? <laughs> yeah, okay. An average person. You, these things are not interchangeable. And again, there is a reason why they are willing to throw money at the problem. Amount of money that is is negligible to the very profitable railroad companies, but they aren't willing to compromise on sick days, and it's because these railroad companies have seen exponential record profits since they adopted this precision railroading loading strategy, which requires very tight schedules that basically does not permit for there to be any sick day scheduling whatsoever. So it's not just okay. It's not like a it's not like a kind of an incremental change. It's a cliff for the railroad industry to have to basically change a strategy that has enabled it to have record corporate profits, which again, it's not using to pay salaries. It's not using to reinvest in the company. It's not using for safety. It's using for stock buybacks, which we saw in the earlier clip. The CEO is not willing to commit to stop paying out under any circumstances. You know, it's interesting you're not seeing uh I think much pushback to what you're just saying from conservative media. Like I'm trying to, obviously, I don't know as much about this issue as you do, and I'm trying to, you know, what, how would if I'm trying to have a debate and we're trying to present what is the other side, what is the other side saying? And I'm just, I'm not seeing it. I don't know what. In fact, conservative media, to the extent they've taken an interest in this story, it has been to slam the administration, Absolutely. Biden and Buttigieg, for not getting these things done. Yeah. So I, I spoke to actually David Sirota on my podcast today about this because, and I said to him basically, I don't care if the Republican coverage of this is in good faith their bad faith. It's not important. The fact that they have been so on this issue and frankly politicizing it the way that they have has created more accountability for the Biden administration than anything else potentially. And that is a good thing for the people of East Palestine. But here's what you have to watch out for. There are corporatists in both parties. We have two corporate parties, both of which were complicit. The Obama administration, the Trump administration, and the Biden administration, all complicit in the regulatory failures that led to this crisis. Okay. That being the case, even though there is a lot of political capital that can be earned by attacking the other side over an insufficient response in East Palestine, at the party level, neither party wants to stop getting these railroad donations, wants to stop having these industry lobbyists' um, investment and um, uh, capture of Congress, et cetera. So what, what we're seeing materialize now is that everyone needs an off-ramp where they can save face, where they don't suddenly look like they've turned against the people of East Palestine. And what I'm afraid is happening is that the specific issue of the brake overheating, you know, the train, we saw it on fire, and, and that is what everyone is focusing on because it is a more limited correction that costs less for the rail company than dealing with all of these systemic issues, like the the, the time off issue, like staffing issues where there's more people on a train that can do inspections, like installing all of the more high quality brakes on the, on the train. If the issue is narrowly focused to putting heat sensors on tracks just outside of cities in particular so that we can be alerted more quickly if a wheel is on fire, then everyone can you know, dust, dust their shoulders off and say, well, job well, well done, you've solved this issue, but it doesn't, and that's the problem. There were a whole stream. Well, if it doesn't, it doesn't, but if it does, it does. No, but it, it matters because people will claim that it fixes the problem when it, in fact, doesn't. And you can see a, a bipartisan alignment that's happening right now as we speak behind saying, celebrate us, we're, we're willing to pass uh, legislation that addresses that one specific issue because they're hoping that people are so distracted, they count it as a victory, and they ignore all of these other issues that these workers have been fighting for for three years. Mm. 
All right, well, that does it for us for today. If you missed, and for the whole week, actually, if you missed any of our content in the last few days, we'll have some highlights for you tomorrow. Check those out. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Take care. Bye-bye.